Well, good morning and greetings of love to each of you today. I have two questions for you to consider here at the beginning. And question one, how do you measure your life? With, with what measurement do you measure the value of the things that you have done or accomplished? This past week, I celebrated my 49th birthday. How do I measure the value of what I have accomplished in the past 49 years? And the second question I have is, how does God measure your life? How does God measure the value of the things that you have done or accomplished? How would God measure what I accomplished in the past 49 years? Well, for a message today, I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Today, I'd like to go through this chapter and consider what it has to say. In this passage, we find the measuring answers for how to measure your life and how God measures our life. And so I'd like to dig into this passage and see what it has to show us today. Now some would say 1 Corinthians 13 should be considered as a standalone passage. I personally see it as divinely placed between chapter 12 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And I want to look at it in that way today. And so in chapter 12, Paul is teaching about the importance of spiritual gifts within the church. Verse 12 of chapter 12 says, For the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. And Paul concludes that passage with verse 31, but desire earnest, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show to you a more excellent way. And then if you look at chapter 14, the focus in chapter 14 is on orderly worship. Verse 33 says of that chapter, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 40 says, let all things be done decently and in order. And so in chapter 12, Paul is saying, every spiritual gift is important and needed for the spiritual growth of the church. And chapter 14 shows us for these spiritual gifts to accomplish their designed purposes, each part must move in a timely and orderly fashion. And so the purpose then of chapter 13 is to teach the Corinthians that the practice and pursuit of spiritual gifts must always take place within the context of love. Love is the oil that lubricates the many moving parts of church life. It protects and it keeps friction under control. 
We know well that with moving parts comes friction. And so we use oil, we use grease to keep friction under control. And love is the ingredient that lubricates the many moving parts of church life. And so today I want to look at 1 Corinthians 13 in three parts. In verse 1 through 3, we have the measure of love. In verse 4 through 7, we find the character of love. And verse 8 through 13 concludes with the supremacy of love. And so we will use this outline for our study today. So let's begin with part one, the measure of love. We find that in verse one through three. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. The measure of love. How do you measure your life? How do you measure the value of the things that you have done or accomplished? One standard the world likes to use is how much money you make. In fact, we even talk in monetary terms of how much a person is worth. You know, he's worth a mil, or a couple million, we'll say, or a billion. Another way people try to measure their value in life is according to their status. Status is simply how people rank you compared to others. How do you measure your life? Well, here in these opening verses, Paul introduces the measure of love. Love is the true measure of all that we say, all that we have, all that we do. Without love, even our best accomplishments are nothing in God's eyes. Paul takes this concept and applies it to three different areas. And notice in all three of these areas, Paul is speaking in the highest terms. Did you notice that? You, you can't get any higher than what Paul is speaking in. First, a person's speech. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, you can't go higher. Second, a person's gifts. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that moves mountains. And third, a person's sacrifice. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to be burned. Burned, again, the highest sacrifice that could be made. However, the conclusion to all of these is simply nothing you say, nothing you have, and nothing you do has any value apart from love. Love is the true measure of all things. So how 
do you measure your life? Well, that brings us to part two, verse four through seven. We have the character of love. Verse four, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thanks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The true character of love. You know, if love is the true measure of all things, and if nothing we do matters apart from love, then we must understand what this love is that Paul is speaking about. We use the word love in so many different ways in our culture. We say, I love Jesus. I love my wife, I love my children, I love this church, I love my mom and dad, my brother and sisters, I love my dog, I love my cat, I love music, I love reading, I love eating out, I love the mountains. Now, obviously, the word love did not mean exactly the same thing in those sentences. You know very well that the love I have for my wife is different than my love I have for the mountains or even the cat. So what is this love here that Paul is speaking about? Is it something you feel or something you do? Well, it depends. Just like us, the Greeks understood that love has different meanings in different contexts. In fact, they even used different words to capture some of those meanings, words that we don't have. They had a word for the love of friendship and another word for the love of romance. They also had a word for the love of choice and commitment. Not a friendship love, not a romantic love, but agape love, choosing to love another person. And it's interesting, the New Testament writers picked up on this word and used it many times to describe God's love, God's self-sacrificing love for man, shown to us in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And so the word agape came to represent unconditional love, choosing to love another person regardless of your feelings. You see, you could not have friendship love or romantic love for your enemy, but you could have agape love. You could choose to love your enemy unconditionally regardless of how he treated you back. And so the word Paul uses for love here in 1 Corinthians 13 is the agape love. 
And so when Paul describes the character of love in these verses, he is talking about this agape love. And the very first description of this agape love about gives me the goosebumps. This agape love is first described as patient. Let's pause for a minute. I want you to go back to verse 1, 2, and 3. And I want you to read those verses to yourself. And I want you to replace the word love or charity with the word patience. done? It's kind of sobering, is it not? You remember I said Paul was speaking there in verse 1 and 2 and 3 in the highest, the highest, as high as you can go, but without patience, you see. And so Paul begins with two words, which describe positively what love is. Love is patient, and love is kind. These first two descriptions of agape love describe how this love acts. Love acts patiently. Love acts kindly. And and keep in mind, 1 Corinthians 13 is in the context of church, but you could take this and you can apply it at home, work, and play. So it's not just for in the church, you can take it beyond. So keep that in mind as we go through this. But the word patient here means to bear patiently with other people's faults and offenses, to be long-suffering. This is the first characteristic of agape love because it is totally unconditional. It is choosing to love another, not because of who they are, but in spite of who they are, in spite of what they do to you or have done to you. And then second, agape love is kind. You know, it's not that difficult to be kind. It doesn't really take that much effort but it does take intention. And I believe that is what Paul is talking about here, caring enough to be kind. And sometimes just a word is enough. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. So first, love is patient, love is kind. Paul moves on and gives a series of seven words which describe negatively what love is not. So let's look at them. Love does not envy. Desiring what another person has. The word envy here comes from a strong word. It literally means to burn or boil with envy. 
Love does not parade itself. Parade means to exaggerate or display yourself, to brag about yourself. It literally has the thought to be a windbag. It's been said, when a person sings his own praises, he often gets the pitch too high. <laughs> Love does not parade itself. Love does not behave rudely, which means to act disgracefully or dishonorably. It means to violate the accepted standards of behavior in such a way that makes others feel uncomfortable. I believe Paul is speaking here of common courtesy, immodest dress, offensive language, and disrespect for others are all examples of a general rudeness which has no place with agape love. Love does not behave rudely. Next, love does not seek its own, seeking your own advantage, putting yourself before others. Love does not use people to gain its own advantage. It looks outward rather than inward. It takes on the attitude of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Love is not self-seeking. The next two negatives of what love is not could be considered together. The first one, love is not provoked, or love is not easily angered. Not easily angered has to do with the short term. You know, that blowing up when someone presses your buttons, that quick reaction, which often results in hurtful words and harmful actions. And then following that, love thinks no evil or it keeps no record of wrong. Keeping a record of wrongs is the long-term decision to hold on to bitterness and resentment. You know, people will generally react to what just happened in two ways. A quick flare-up, or a long burn. Some of us deal with what they call that bottle rocket anger. If you're f familiar with a bottle rocket, you light it and it goes up in the air like that and it goes and it's over. Some of us deal with that. And then there's another anger out there. They call it the freight train anger. You know, it, it gets going and it picks up that momentum and it just goes and goes and goes, just burns away. And you know, it's hard to stop a freight train. I have an app on my phone called Brainy Quotes. And every morning it sends me a quote at eight o'clock. And this week I'm studying for this message and Brainy Quote sent me this. What happens is not as important 
as how you react to what happens. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, I was thinking about this this morning and I thought about a discussion I had recently with a friend from another state and they're going through some church difficulties. And in a meeting with the ministry and other (coughs) brethren, there was some accusations brought to him and some went back to 10 years ago. And I asked him, I said, well, do you all have council meeting? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you all say, you know, I have peace with God and my fellow man, and you all say all of that? Oh, yeah, yeah, they do all that. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, what, well, 10 years? I mean, you, you would have said you had peace with your fellow man about 20 times, you know. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So up to now, Paul has described love in positive terms, what love is. And in negative terms, what love is not. Now he goes on to describe love with a contrasting statement. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Some time ago, we were traveling on Interstate 81, and we came up on a freight truck, and on the the door of the uh, freight trailer, someone had wrote in the uh, dirt, love rejoices in the truth. And I appreciated that. Something worth reading. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You see, when I love with agape love, I don't find any pleasure when people are accused of sin. Or even if they are proven to be guilty. Agape love mourns over sin that produces a need for justice. Love takes no pleasure when people are mistreated in any injustice, in any wickedness at all. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. That's the contrast. Love rejoices when truth wins out, not evil. And I like the word with that follows the word rejoice. Love rejoices with the truth. The word with added here gives it that agape flavor. I'm rejoicing collectively. I'm rejoicing together. It's more than just me here. I'm standing with the people who rejoice when truth is exposed. I'm with the folks who speak the truth in love. I'm with the church who defends biblical truth. The people I hang out with find no joy discussing other people's spiritual failures. I'm with the people who do not delight in evil, but rejoice with the truth. That, my folks, is agape love. And so Paul has described love, this agape love, in positive terms. He's described it in negative terms. 
He's described it with a contrasting statement. And now finally, he tells us four things that love always does. Verse 7, love bears all things. Or love always protects. And I found it interesting, the word bear here as it's used is related to the Greek word for roof. It means to protect by covering over. Just as a roof provides a protective coating from the weather. And so protection is a natural byproduct of love. The good shepherd protects the sheep. A parent naturally protects his or her children. You know, sometimes children complain that their parents are overprotective. Paul calls that love. Love always protects. And you know, this is the time of the year that our cows start having their calves. We had uh, three over the weekend here, three new calves. And I don't know if a mama cow loves her calf, but God sure put within that cow the instinct to protect that calf. And you gotta be careful with some of them. They will push you right over. Protection, love always protects. The next one here in verse seven, believes all things or love always trust. The word believe here means to trust or believe, to commit yourself to someone or something. Now keep in mind, love is not gullible. Love is not naive. It does not believe an obvious lie or blindly puts its trust in an untrustworthy people. But love chooses to believe the best about people until proven otherwise. The next one, hopes all things. Or love always hopes. Love is always hoping for the best, especially in other people. Jerry Clower would say, love is forevermore optimistic. Now, Jerry Clower talks about more than just coon hunting to you. Some of you aren't uh, connecting the dots here, but that's fine. You older ones know what I'm talking about. He has some very good things to say other than his funny stories. But love is forevermore optimistic. Love does not dwell on the problems of the past, but looks forward to the future with confidence and grace. The next one, endures all things. Love always perseveres. Love never stops loving. It continues in the face of rejection and opposition. It bears up under insult and injury. Love perseveres because it's unconditional. It chooses to love people in spite of themselves. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And Paul would say, without this kind of love, 
we are nothing. Love is the true measure of all that we say, all that we have, all that we do. Without love, even our best accomplishments are nothing in God's eyes. If I teach Sunday school, or preach sermons, or visit the sick, if I have not love, I am nothing. If I work my job, raise my children, support my family, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I accomplish all that I set out to do, realize all my dreams, meet all my goals and objectives in life, but have not love, I accomplish nothing. Part three, we come now to verse eight through 13, the supremacy of love. Why does God measure our lives according to love? Why has God chosen this standard rather than any other? Let's read 8 through 13. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am knowing. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul contrasts love which never fails with prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Three specific spiritual gifts which will all pass away. Paul has already spoke about these gifts in chapter 12. He mentioned them in verse 1 through 3 of this chapter. And he will speak about them again in chapter 14. These gifts are clearly important within the church. However, as important as they are to the church spiritual growth, these gifts are never perfect or complete in themselves. In fact, they are not designed to be complete. They are designed to build up and serve the body of Christ. And so Paul says, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We're doing the best we can. The gifts of knowledge and prophecy are partial, imperfect, and incomplete. You know, it's interesting how back in chapter 12, Paul talks about the church with its many members, and he likens that to the body with its many members. Why did Paul use the body for an example? I mean, he could have used the solar system. You know, the solar system is accurate to the minute, to the second. I mean, you can, you can, 
There's software out there that you can back up the solar system and see what happened a thousand years ago. And you can take that same software and see what's going to happen in a thousand years. That's how predictable the solar system is. Why didn't he use something like that and liken the church to the solar system instead of a frail human body that gets sick and, and has all of its problems? Think about that. Let's go on and keep that thought in mind. Verse 11, Paul uses, well, verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. In verse 10, we have that hope of a future perfection. Paul speaks about when perfection comes. When Christ returns, we will be perfected and complete. The imperfect will disappear. Verse 11, he uses the example of childhood. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Just as childhood has a temporary function, and so do spiritual gifts. Childhood eventually gives way to adulthood. And spiritual gifts give way to spiritual maturity and love. Spiritual gifts are temporary, while love will last forever. And then, verse 12, he gives us the example of a poor reflection. The childhood example illustration illustrates the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. The mirror example illustrates the partial nature of spiritual gifts. Now we see in a mirror dimly. It's a poor reflection. You know, the mirrors in Paul's day did not give the same quality reflection as today's mirrors do. They were made from polished steel or other metals other than glass. I read that the Corinthians were famous for their bronze mirrors. A poor reflection is partial by nature. You know, with a poor reflection, you don't pick up all the fine details as if you were looking to someone face to face. But even a perfect reflection is a poor substitute for the real thing. And it is the same way with spiritual gifts. They are only partial in nature. Think about it. If the gifts we see working in the church are but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then think of the glory when Christ returns and the church is made perfect in love, when we shall see Jesus face to face. Now we know in part. We're doing the best we can, but then we shall fully know, even as God fully knows us. You know, I find it interesting in my short 49 years, I have seen people, I've seen folks that endeavor to start a new church. And it is going to be the one. It is going to be right. And so they 
attempt to do that. But you know, over time, if, if the church goes on and, and prospers, it becomes just another church. <laughs> it, it's on this side of eternity, we do the best we can with what God gives us. We're, we're doing the best we can, but it cannot be perfect on this side. But the day is coming when it will be perfect. And that's what we're looking for. When Christ returns and the church is perfected in love. Now we know in part, but then we shall fully know. And I believe we can have a good church on this side of eternity. I believe that can happen with God's help. But we ain't going to get it perfect on this side of eternity. Because... The gifts, the gifts will eventually pass away. I come, I share my gift, I move on. You come, you do yours, you move on. And uh, this is not, the, this church here is not the solar system, okay? It's like the body. And so it wears out, it dies. Verse 13, now abides faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul proclaims the superiority of love, not only to spiritual gifts, but to all other things as well. Faith, hope, and love are the three highest virtues of all. Faith is essential to the Christian life. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We believe through faith. We are saved and justified through faith. We live by faith. Faith is one of the highest of all Christian virtues. And hope, too, is essential to the Christian life. We have the hope of salvation, the hope of the resurrection, and the blessed hope of Christ's return. Our hope is not like the world's hope, marked by uncertainty and doubt. Rather, Christian hope is bold, strong, and confident in the promises of God. And so hope, too, is another of the highest of all Christian virtues. If you were going to make a list of all the ways God could measure our lives, certainly faith, hope, and love would have to be the top three, would it not? But out of these three, Paul says... The greatest of these is love. Why? Why does love top the list? Well, for the very exact same reason that love won out over spiritual gifts. Faith and hope are among the very highest virtues, and yet like spiritual gifts, they are only temporary and partial. You see, faith is for this life only. We live by faith now, but faith will not be necessary in heaven when we see Jesus face to face. In that day, faith will give way to sight. And hope, like faith, is for this life only. We wait and hope for the redemption of our bodies. Once we are resurrected, once we have safely entered heaven, 
Once we are forever in God's presence, then hope will no longer be necessary. But love forever endures. Faith will eventually become sight. Hope will ultimately be fulfilled. But only love continues throughout eternity. I have been blessed and have come to believe that this chapter is one of the most beautiful and meaningful passages in all of scripture. And so, in closing, let me recap what we just said. Verse 1 through 3 answers the how question. How does God measure our lives? The answer is love. Nothing we say, nothing we have, nothing we do has any lasting value apart from love. Love is the standard by which God measures our lives. Verse 4 through 7 answer the what question. If love is the standard by which God measures our lives, then what is love? The answer is love is patient, love is kind. And on it goes, or basically, love is like Jesus. Verse 8 through 13 answer the why question. Why does God measure our lives according to love? The answer is because love is the greatest of all. Spiritual gifts are temporary and partial. Love is permanent and complete. Even faith will change to sight and hope will change to fulfillment, but love will never be replaced. Love lasts forever. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We'll call for a closing song.